Welcome back to the Air Power and International Security Podcast. Today I'll be speaking with Group Captain Dr. Paul Stewart about RAF Medmanum during the Second World War. Most people have heard of Bletchley Park, thanks to Benedict Cumberbatch and his film riddled with historical inaccuracies, but far fewer people, I think, are familiar with another top-secret department housed from 1941 at RAF Medmanum in Buckinghamshire. Medmanum housed the Central Interpretation Unit, which collected, collated and analysed thousands and thousands of reconnaissance photos during the Second World War. In the run-up to D-Day, for instance, around 1,500 intelligence reports were being produced each month by the staff at RAF Medmanum. This is a truly phenomenal amount of work. And this is imagery intelligence production on a sort of industrial scale. So I'm going to be asking Paul how they were able to do this and how important this work was to the Allied war effort. Nobody knows more about RAF Medmanum than Dr. Paul Stewart. He worked in RAF intelligence for 35 years and as chair of the Medmanum Association, a society for former and current photographic interpreters and image analysts, he went on to write a PhD on its history and significance. So I hope you enjoy this. I think it's going to be great. Hi Paul, thanks for joining me today. I'm really delighted we can get you on the on the show. Before we talk about what took place at RAF Medmanum, could I ask what attracted you to this subject? Why did you decide to start researching RAF Medmanum? It really came from my background in the RAF uh, as an intelligence officer and the first side I went into was imagery intelligence. So after basic training, my professional training was in photographic interpretation and in one of the history lectures in photographic interpretation, a wing commander, Mike Mockford, talked um, about RF Mednam and the Central Interpretation Unit and the Allied Central Interpretation Unit at RF Mednam and all of the imagery intelligence that they had done and what a phenomenal intelligence organization it had been. So that sort of, that sort of sparked an initial interest in Mednam. And then as I went through um, my service um, career, I saw the work that the, and commanding the work that the photographic interpreters was doing and could see um, resonances back with what it must have been like to work at Mednam during a war of national survival where the intelligence you were producing was absolutely critical to the survival of the nation. So that sort of history as a military officer of working in imagery intelligence meant that I had a love for the history of imagery intelligence, the work that previous photographic interpreters had done, and the main site of that was RF Medinam during the Second World War. Excellent. It does strike me that very few people comparatively know about RAF Medmanum compared to Bletchley Park, say. Have you ever thought, have you ever wondered why that might be the case? I have. I have my own theories on why it's the case. Um, part of it is the secrecy and the code words that surrounded Bletchley Park, the secrecy that surrounded it for 30 years after the war. 
and the sort of tales of daring do by the scientists, etc., at Bletchley that that gave Bletchley a starring role in intelligence during the Second World War. We have that wonderful history of the Second World War by Hinsley, and Hinsley does mention Mednam, but Hinsley himself worked at Bletchley Park. So in his history, official history of the Second World War, he mentions Bletchley and the importance of Bletchley far more than he mentions photographic reconnaissance and Mednam, though he does touch on them. And the final side is for Mednam, the Mednam almost seems to have been completely forgotten because people think that the aircrew who flew the reconnaissance missions, they were the ones who produced the intelligence. There seems to be in people's minds that the instant the plane landed, that's the intelligence, nothing was done with it. The intelligence was there direct from the photograph straight to finished intelligence. So stories were written about the photographic reconnaissance unit and the work done by the daring do of the Spitfire pilots, the Mosquito pilots, the recce pilots flying alone, unarmed, unafraid. And it seemed to go straight from that to the photograph produced the intelligence without any work by any human being. And the whole work of this enormous organization at Mednam seems to have been forgotten. Now, I'm always interested in historical research. So how did you actually write this history of Medmenham? What sort of sources were you using? Were they open, accessible sources? Were they, were they classified as secret at one point? And what did you make of these sources? What did they tell you? Medmenham was really lucky as an organisation. It was an RAF organisation, joint service staffing inside it. But because it was an RAF organization, it went through all of the admin procedures. So it had a Unit 540. The Unit 540 recorded what Mednam did, uh, recorded it far better than 540s do, um, than I think 540s do today. Um, it recorded very well the operations were done there. So the secret 540s were all available from the start of Mednam right through to the end of the war. Mednam provided intelligence reports and their intelligence reports, copies of those were sent, they, they, some of them went out in distribution lists of two, 300 copies. Copies of those went to the air ministry um, and those air ministry copies also made it into the National Archives. So there's over, um, there's almost 40,000 intelligence reports in the National Archives that Mednam produced during the war. Um, a lot of the photographs that Mednam produced also made it into the National Archives where they used photographs as attachments to their reports. The reports went out, tended to go out as signals or as written reports with attached annotated photographs. A lot of those attached annotated photographs also made it into the National Archives. And that formed um, the backdrop and, and the, the core of my PhD, having all of those documents to, to read through. Then there's the Mednam Archive. So that there's the Mednam Association, which is photographic interpreters, um, people from the Second World War, onwards, though we have now lost the last of the Second World War photographic interpreters, they have an associated museum and an associated archive. 
there's over 26,000 items in the Mednam archive. Um, and I was able to access the Mednam archive as well and use that. And that did fill in gaps. So I think those are the sort of the main archives um, that I used. And apart from the few secret documents in the States, which they very kindly declassified for me, um, the, the rest had already been, been declassified. I was in that lucky position of having access to just about everything had been declassified, unlike for Bletchley Park, uh, there is still some stuff hidden away in GCHQ that's still classified and maybe in a hundred years time we'll find out about it or our successes will. That's incredible. That's incredible. Uh, historians tend to operate with so few sources uh, and, and intelligence historians especially are scrambling to find the little crumbs that survive. So it's it, it, it's crazy that not more has been written about Medmanum given the, the, the huge number of intelligence reports and the actual photos themselves that survived. Now if we move on to RAF Medmanum, when was it actually established then and for what purpose? At the beginning of the war, we were not very good at all at um, photographic reconnaissance. We were flying Hudsons for photographic reconnaissance, uh, Blenheims for photographic reconnaissance. And as the war started and we tried to uh, collect reconnaissance, the cameras were freezing up and jamming. Um, they were getting fogged film. Um, the aircraft were not good at defending themselves and were being shot down. Um, that those were that their old aircraft are not good in contested airspace against uh, state-of-the-art fighters. So we had been getting from MI6 imagery over Germany and over occupied territory um, from Sydney Cotton. Uh, he had hidden cameras that he took reconnaissance imagery from at relatively high altitude and used a company called the Aircraft Operating Company to analyze that imagery and the photographic interpreters and equipment at that company to provide short intelligence reports to MI6 that got passed on to the Air Ministry. The Air Ministry realized that here was a company that could do something they couldn't and um, they requisitioned the aircraft operating company um, in 1940. The civilians from it um, were requisitioned and eventually all became RAF personnel. The equipment was requisitioned. They had one key bit of equipment, the Vilt Stereo Comparator, a massive two or three ton um, stereo device that could look at photographs in stereo and look at high altitude, low resolution imagery. And because of the power of the optics, they were able to see shipping on the ground, um, troop movements and, and things um, from imagery that if you looked at the print or even blew up the print, you would think it was absolutely useless. But the use of stereo within that company um, was critical. So that company was based at Wembley, it was requisitioned, Wembley became RAF Wembley, and they renamed it the Photographic Interpretation Unit in 1940. And um, about 
100 RAF personnel were put in to assist as photographic interpreters. Wembley and the photographic interpretation unit got bombed and then bombed again and the damage got very close to the room housing the Vilt and they decided they needed to look for a safer location and a location that could grow beyond the sort of 230 people they now had working there. So they looked around and they found Danesfield House uh, near Marlow on the banks of the Thames. Danesfield House was large enough with plenty of grounds to be able to put huts and to expand into huts a bit like they did at Bletchley Park and Danesfield House was requisitioned and the whole photographic interpretation unit moved to Danesfield House by May 41. It started moving in April, but it completed the move by May 1941. Um, and just before it moved, they renamed it at Wembley, at RF Wembley, from the photographic interpretation unit to the central interpretation unit. And it was a central interpretation unit that moved to RF Medenham at Danesfield House. It then grew because it had the space, there was the demand, um, there was so much more imagery coming in that it grew from the sort of 230 people who moved there to over 2,000 people by the mid-1940s, uh, by mid-1944 and into 45. So that's how it came to be. Okay, so thousands of people on site, a huge workforce taking uh, this pro this raw information product and turning it into intelligence. You talked a little bit there about the civilians working in this capacity. Were there, was there a system like Bletchley Park that were taking sort of academics and um, odd people, eccentric people, and converting them for war work? Or was this very much a military environment? It was a bit of both. Um, unlike Bletchley Park, it was not... Um, civilian manned. It was an RAF station and just about everybody there um, was converted over into RAF officers or RAF airmen depending um, what jobs they were doing. But it wasn't just military recruitment that went um, to Mednam. They did bring in um, those strange people from Oxford and Cambridge and other other places, but they were all put into uniform, um, mainly into RAF uniform. Dorothy Garrett, the first woman professor at Cambridge, matter of fact, she was a, a professor at Cambridge before women were actually awarded degrees at Cambridge. Not quite sure how, how that worked, um, but she came to Mednam and was an excellent photographic interpreter um, and effectively became a civilian in uniform, um, became a second officer in the, in, in the WAF. Um, interestingly, Mednam by 1944, um, there were more WAFs at Mednam than there were RAF at, at Mednam. Um, probably about 100 more WAFs than they were uh, RAF in, in sort of about 760 WAFs and about and over 600 um, airmen and officers. And the women at Mednam, if they were really good, then the women could command sections. And they are famous examples at Mednam. Um, Constance Babington Smith, 
the woman credited with finding the flying bombs at Pinamund. Um, she commanded the uh, aircraft section at Mednam, um, and other women commanded other sections at Mednam. So there was, it was really, if you were good enough for the job, then you could command a section. Absolutely. It's a fantastic story of women's war work, RF Mednam. Didn't Churchill's daughter also work there? Uh, Sarah Oliver? The reports are she was a very good and very conscientious um, photographic interpreter. Whether because she was there, Churchill visited so many times, I don't know, but Churchill was certainly well aware of their work. Uh, there's one wonderful story um, about Operation Torch and when the landings are about to happen. Uh, Sarah Churchill was um, on leave with her father and uh, at the hour that uh, the landing was about to happen, Churchill mentioned that um, this great operation was happening and the number of ships that uh, was about to land the, um, the troops. And Sarah corrected him and said that he was wrong about the number of ships and she gave him the correct number of ships because she'd been working on the intelligence at Mednam to send out for the pre-briefings and for, for the landings. And he said, why didn't you tell me you were working on it? She said, it was classified and I didn't know you were cleared. <laughs> Fantastic story. So Medmanum is, is established in 1941. What is it primarily tasked with? What is it taking pictures of? Well, it's tasked with doing all second and third phase photographic interpretation on all imagery that the Allies were taking. The first phase reporting was done on the airfields where the aircraft land. So the aircraft land, films taken out and processed as quickly as possible. And within an hour, the films processed, the PIs on the flying station quickly look through the film and they will only select a few things from the entire film that they think are of interest, that look interesting, and they will send a flash report out on that, then the whole film would be sent to Mednam. The whole film would be plotted by the plotters, prints made on high-speed print machines, and it was the prints that went to the photographic interpreters. So they would look at these six by six or nine by nine prints, invariably looking at them in stereo, and stereo was very important. That allowed them to get far more intelligence out of the prints. And Mednam would do initially second phase photographic interpretation uh, and within 24 hours would get a report out on that entire mission that the Spitfire would have flown. So every single target they covered, but also if they picked up anything between targets where they'd left the cameras running, they would look at every single frame and report out on every frame um, and produce that into a large report that went out within 24 hours. Mednam then had really specialist sections on the army, the navy, the air force, targeting, battle damage assessments, night photography, and those sections would produce the in detail third phase reports. So, for example, on finding the flying bombs at Penamund, that was the aircraft section that looked at those and the aircraft section was involved in all of the work of hunting for the flying bombs and then hunting 
for the launch sites for them uh, around France. And those sections would produce their detailed reports between 24 hours afterwards, up to some of them would take weeks because they would take imagery from previous sorties, previous months, as it went on from previous years and do comparative analysis. And the Medinum Intelligence Report could be from a single page up to reports that were over 100 pages long. So they were very, very detailed reports. You've already talked previously about how the British, how the RAF started the Second World War with fairly poor reconnaissance capabilities. Um, vulnerable aircraft, perhaps less capable cameras. How does that improve? When does that improve? And how are the RAF pilots, how are the Spitfires collecting these photographs? You've got a couple of hours. <laughs> um, if I start with, first of all, the, the aircraft, um, Sydney Cotton realised that in a time of war, to carry on providing reconnaissance over occupied and defended territory, you needed aircraft far better than the aircraft we had been using, the Hudsons, etc. So he provided a two-page future requirement paper calling for specially adapted fighter aircraft without any guns in them to fly higher and faster and with extra fuel tanks to give them extra range. Now, he actually had the year of Churchill and of uh, Chief of the Air Staff and was the sort of person who didn't stand on rank and would march into people's offices. And he was instrumental in getting the first Spitfires for photographic reconnaissance. He got those Spitfires in 1940 when Spitfires were desperately needed for the Battle of Britain. And those few Spitfires that he, he got were modified, guns removed, polished up, extra fuel tanks put in, and they proved very, very, they proved the concept of this high flying, undefended single Spitfire. And that's where the, the Spitfires started from his agitation and his work. And he had the films from those Spitfires processed by the photographic interpretation unit, i.e., the um, aircraft operating company and photographic interpretation unit as it became known because it required the vilt and the high magnification the vilt could have to be able to get anything out of this high altitude film uh, and imagery that was taken by the Spitfires because when a print was taken from the Spitfire and enlarged um, people would look at it and say, I can't get any intelligence out of that at all. It, 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 it's such poor resolution, it's no good. Well, with stereo and stereo on the vilt, they were able to get good intelligence out of it. Um, Willems Harbour, for example, they were able to count all of the German capital ships that were there. When you looked at the print, you couldn't see, you could hardly see Willemshaven at all, but you, and you certainly couldn't see any of the ships, but in stereo on the Vilt, you were able to see it. So that, that's how the Spitfire came into being. The cameras, well, the cameras, the F-8 and the F-24 were good cameras and actually worked very well, had quite reasonable lenses, but at the time they didn't have long lenses, so they didn't produce detailed imagery but very soon we moved on from six inch lenses and 12 inch lenses all the way up to getting 40 inch lenses 
which from high altitude produced very good imagery, high quality imagery. And when you looked at that high quality imagery in stereo and all stereo is, is having image number one and image number two with a 60% overlap. If there's a 60% overlap between image number one and image number two, and you look at it through a stereoscope, you see everything in 3D. And when you see it in 3D, you can get far more intelligence out of it than you can when you look at it um, in mono. And it worked re remarkably well. Why did these old cameras, the F24, work so well in the Spitfire when they were failing in the, in the Hudsons? Well, they soon realized and um, actually Sydney Cotton had realized this, that they were freezing up and what you needed to do was duct hot air from the engines over the cameras and over the lenses to stop them freezing up. So for high altitude work, that's what they did. At the beginning of the war, the films would be manually processed. They would go through all of the developing fluid and you would have people turning handles to wind the film through um, the processing machines. And then manually printing. Well, very soon, uh, I think it was 41, the first one, they got continuous film processors where you could process the film automatically at four foot a min minute. Uh, and they then got high speed multi-printers where you could print um, a thousand prints an hour from these high speed uh, multi-printers. And they literally built uh, hundreds of these multi-printers. So really just as much technological innovation as Birchley Park. I mean, to be able to print that many photos so quickly is, is, is very impressive. It just shows the industrial level of this intelligence machine. It does. Um, there were even electronic devices, early electronic devices in the multi-printers and in the um, film processor to check for density. It amazes me that they could, could use something to create a 3D image in the Second World War. That's, that's really impressive. And here's another big question for you, so I apologise in advance. How important were these photos to the conduct of the Second World War? My view is photographic reconnaissance was probably the second most important form of intelligence after Bletchley Park. The only thing that produced more intelligence um, was Bletchley Park. The difference was Bletchley Park intelligence could not be told to people who were not cleared. And it was a very, very restrictive list of people who were cleared to Bletchley Park intelligence. During the Battle of Britain, no intelligence in Operation Sea Lion came from Bletchley Park until October 1940. Well, by October 1940, Operation Sea Lion had already been called off. Um, the intelligence about the build-up to the invasion mainly came from the Spitfires and what Medenham did, uh, sorry, in those days, what the Photographic Interpretation Unit did at RAF Wembley was they counted the build-up of invasion barges and they looked at the different type of invasion barges. The Spitfires flew every single day to collect imagery over the German build-up area for, for the invasion. All of that intelligence went to the Air Ministry. That intelligence went up to the Cabinet Office. It was that intelligence that went into the weekly invasion reports from the Cabinet Office and briefing ministers. So photographic reconnaissance was essential for that build-up, and it did track that build-up, and it showed them when 
Germany was ready to, to invade, but it also showed that no troops had started embarking upon the invasion barges. So they knew that that order hadn't been given. And then from late September down onwards, the reduction in the invasion barges and all of that was, uh, was reported. And I don't believe any other form of intelligence was able to provide that detail. And, and determining whether or not to put the country on an invasion footing is, is quite pivotal, right, in terms of managing resources um, and, and whatnot. So hugely decisive, as, as decisive as intelligence can be, perhaps. Does RAF Medmenum have any impact on the combined bomber offensives? It's well known that throughout the majority of the Second World War, Bomber Command struggled to hit many of its targets. Do photos have any impact on making Bomber Command more effective, more accurate in their bombing attacks? Um, yes, it, it plays a, a very big part in it. Initially, it led to Mednam and um, Bomber Command almost falling out when they were being told that they were missing their targets and they couldn't find any damage to the target on, on photographs. But eventually they did come round and realise that they were missing their targets. A special study was done and Mednam provided intelligence and actually provided photographic interpreters to Bomber Command to assist in the internal looking at the processes and what was happening. Um, and they were able to prove where the bombs were dropping, how far away the bombs were dropping. Um, K section at Mednam was a specialist section in, we'd call it um, battle damage assessment, bomb damage assessment at, at the time. K section were experts in that and they were able to find the majority of places of where the sort of bombs had been dropped. There was also N section that was a specialist section for doing nighttime um, imagery analysis. Uh, and that's not the night shift, that is looking at nighttime photography. As you know, very soon, bomber aircraft were starting to be fitted with a camera to be able to show where they dropped their bombs and they would also drop with the bombs a um, photo flash um, that would detonate and the light from the photo flash was timed so the bombing aircraft would be able to show the fall of bombs and where it was. So N section was able to actually plot the imagery from the actual bombing aircraft at night. But what happened was the very next day, photographic reconnaissance Spitfires from the photographic reconnaissance unit would fly over the target, a single one would fly over the target to collect reconnaissance over the target. It wasn't just um, the bombing targets they would cover, they would cover other targets as well on the sortie and return to base. But the bombing targets they would cover the next day, uh, that imagery would be able to show whether they'd hit the aim point, how far away from the aim point they were. And as you said, in 1940, they could be miles away from the aim point. By 1942, they'd improved the bomb aiming equipment. They'd improved navigation. They had all of the, they started to have extra navigation aids 
on the aircraft and the bombing accuracy got better and better. And then we move into the pathfinders and the pathfinders dropping their marking flares and everything to improve the accuracy. And all of that was being plotted by K section who did the battle damage assessment and by N section. So all of that analysis um, from 1940 onwards of where the bombs fell, what damage they did, whether it was near the aim point, on the aim point, or miles away, sometimes in a different country. Um, all of that work was done by initially RF Wembley in the Photographic Interpretation Unit, and then by RF Mednam, K section and N section, and they became, uh, it, it became a sort of industrial process producing these reports. So Bomber Command and the Bomber Offensive had a steady stream of intelligence on their performance coming from Medenham day after day after day. Was Medenham's role in the Combined Bomber Offensive's its most important task, or did it vary according to the time and context of the war? I think it's the latter. I think it varied with the time and context of the war. Um, I think there were long periods where battle damage assessment from the bombing offensive was an important task, but not the main one. Um, from late 43 onwards, I think the main task of Mednam was producing industrial quantities of planning intelligence for D-Day. No single landing ship or landing craft went in without them having a photograph from Mednam showing what the coast and what the area they were landing at looked like. Using 3D stereoscopic imagery, they produce three-dimensional models. They then found a technique to produce copies, rubber copies of them. And those rubber copies of them went to all of the planning staffs so that the troops could be briefed on models of this is what the invasion area is going to look at. So not only did they have the intelligence reports from Mednam, the annotated photographs from Mednam, they also had models, three-dimensional models, of what the landing area was going to, to look like. So I would say there were phases where the intelligence that Mednam produced and its ability to produce planning intelligence, and because this intelligence was only secret, the intelligence was able to be used at all levels. So I would say there were times where its use for planning um, was possibly more important than its use for battle damage assessment. Though, of course, the battle damage assessment stopped you going back and re-attacking a target that you didn't need to attack. I never knew they were able to produce 3D models. If you're, a, if you're planning an operation, if you're planning a battle, a 3D model is surely going to help you out quite significantly. And given, as you, as you mentioned, far more people were able to benefit and capitalise on this intelligence than, than Bletchley Park. So perhaps there's an argument there for, or for, for saying that Medmanum is perhaps more influential, more pivotal than Bletchley Park even, perhaps. I don't know. I'll leave that for others to debate. The... That there have been people who've just read the um, the folklore of Medenham, uh, and they from the folklore they say, well, surely Medenham was more important than than Bletchley Park. I don't think the facts and the analysis in detail bears that out. Though there are parts where 
Mednam was uh, absolutely critical to, to what was going on. Um, the, uh, another example I've said about the planning for, for D-Day, um, if you go beyond D-Day, one of the big concerns that the commanders had was the ability of Nazi Germany to react to D-Day and to push us back into the sea. It, it's well known there was a bomber offensive to interdict the railway lines and to cut railway bridges, etc. But I don't believe it's known that every single day Mednam produced a railway report um, from before D-Day to two months after D-Day, at least two months after D-Day, that highlighted every single place where the rail system was broken and you couldn't get trains through, um, highlighted where all the new attacks had happened. And to make it easy to analyze, they attached to it a map and they broke France into areas. And these maps, they would annotate in red where the damage was done to all of the railway lines and they'd be able to, from there, see where a line was open and where it needed a re-attack. That was done every single day from before D-Day to months after D-Day. And the rail seal around the Normandy invasion area was so successful that the Germans were having to detrain uh, all the way back at Paris and go down by road. And of course, as soon as the Germans were walking down by road, bringing their heavy armor down by road, etc., it was open to interdiction by our tactical air forces. And the amount of reinforcements that actually arrived in the Normandy area was reduced by over 50% because of the rail seal slowing it down and the interdiction from them having to travel so far over land rather than by slowly on the roads rather than um, getting down there rapidly by train. No, this is a fascinating story. I don't realise the sheer scale of the efforts to actually invade France. It's just a tremendous amount of work. So RAF Medmanum, clearly very important, very influential throughout the war. What happens to RAF photographic intelligence after the war? They eventually moved from Mednam to Newnham. While they were at Newnham Park in the early 50s, it became the Joint Air Reconnaissance Intelligence Centre, uh, Brackett UK. And then in the early 50s, the Joint Air Reconnaissance Intelligence Centre at Newnham Park moved into a specially built complex at RF Brampton. Um, so RF Brampton, like Mednam, like Newnham Park, had a grand house on it, uh, but was a, an RF base, but not a flying base. So what started at RAF Medenham ended up moving to RAF Brampton and Jarrick and strategic imagery intelligence was done through the whole of the Cold War using the American um, spy satellite imagery in those days still on film and the spy satellites would take a roll of film, the film would go into a re-entry vehicle, the re-entry vehicle uh, would come down, parachute open, and caught by aircraft in mid-air, um, returned to the CIA because the CIA controlled it. The film reproduced and copies got across the Atlantic on RAF aircraft on special flights by specially cleared couriers into Jarrick 
and uh, Cold War imagery analysis was done, still using stereo. I find that just hard to believe. When I, when I think of satellites, I assume they are communicating their signals electronically. I never knew that they still used film that was then parachuted to, to Earth. That's phenomenal. Okay, Paul, thanks for that. That's been a truly wonderful talk. Thank you much. Thoroughly enjoyed it. What a remarkable story. Thank you so much to Paul Stewart for telling us all about RAF Medmenham and giving us a fascinating insight into the Second World War through the lens of RAF photo reconnaissance. Not only did RAF Medmenham underpin many of the crucial moments and battles of the Second World War, but it served as a forerunner, a foundation, if you like, of the Anglo-American intelligence partnership that survives to this day. If you'd like to find out more about RAF Medmenham, do check out the Medmenham Association. They have a website, medmenham.org, and continue to preserve the history and esprit de corps among image analysts. They also distribute a yearly prize given to the best photo analyst, so do check them out. 